Hello, this is A.R. Bernard, and welcome to my podcast. My objective, it's simple, to create a platform where you can be educated, informed, and inspired as you navigate the intersection of faith and culture. If you have no faith, maybe you'll find it here. So, thanks for tuning in. They didn't mention any of the statistics to you, but the statistics are too high for pastors who are burning out. Some are just abandoning their churches and disappearing. One particular incident where the pastor and his family just left. And Sunday morning, congregation had no idea where the pastor was. It's a lot, a lot of pressure on shepherds and leadership during this particular season. And whenever I see that, I'm aware that something is about to happen. Something good is about to break forth into the earth realm. Because the devil has had enough history to observe the patterns. And he can sense when things are about to break forth. So I get excited. And remember, our theme is renewal. That's our theme this year. Personal renewal, right? Relational renewal. Renewal of purpose. Structural renewal. And ultimately, cultural renewal. And when God renews, and in, in church speak, it's called revival. But essentially, it's renewal, a reawakening of passion, fervor, creativity towards purpose. That is when God is stirring the hearts of his people and the hearts of societies and cultures around the world. So no matter where you're joining us from across the country or around the world, our friends and, and members in South Africa who are joining us in Europe, who are joining us on every continent, thank you for being with us today. And even those of you who are joining us from across the street, God bless your sweetheart. Get back to church. It's only across the street. And I speak for pastors also who understand the same thing and are experiencing it. You know, I have the opportunity to mentor all kinds of people. And people who are, you know, uh, police officers on the ground, sanitation workers on the ground, factory workers on the ground, people who are in positions of political power, entertainers, sports, etc. God has, is no respecter of person. He treats everyone with justice, but he does have favorites. I just want to see if you've been listening for the past few weeks to the sermons around here. Are any favorites of God in the audience here? Thank you. It begins with Jesus Christ, right? It begins with Jesus Christ. But um, I have the opportunity to pastor people that, that, you know, are making an impact on the world. And today we have the opportunity to hear from one of those individuals. We go back some 30 years. You don't know that he may or may not know that he's been part of our spiritual family for a long time. God gives us three things for our growth and development. He gives us his word. He gives us his Holy Spirit. And he gives us community. Community is a church because we don't grow in isolation. We only grow in what? Come on. Community. community. And that is critical across the board. So this individual, look, I don't care if you are in South Africa or in South America or Central America or in Canada and, and, and you're with us. You've heard, if you are into sports, you've heard about this brother. 
Stephen A. Smith rose from a reporter on high school sports at the New York Daily News and a college and NBA beat reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer to become the face of ESPN and its most important on-ear personality. He is the star of the number one morning sports talk show, First Take, a premier analyst on ESPN and ABC's NBA Countdown, the host of NBA in Stephen A's World on ESPN2 ESPN and ESPN Plus, and the host and producer of the podcast, no Mercy with Stephen A. Smith. That's K-N-O-W, by the way. Smith has more than 12 million followers across social media platforms, and his opinions on sports make daily headlines. And you can follow him, of course, at, on Twitter, at Stephen A. Smith. More than anything, he's been a spiritual son and an incredible example of God working in the life of an individual. Let's give a warm CCC welcome to Stephen A. Smith. Max, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I, I just don't know. I just don't know. We have been hoodwinked, bamboozled, led astray, run amok, and flat out deceived. Wait a minute, Teddy. What I'm saying to you is this. If you go to a restaurant to get some steak, some, you know, some filet mignon, and instead you get a burger. talk about oh what you did or didn't do when you went out forget all of that what i'm asking you is a simple question question is this how does this team avoid falling off a cliff until kd gets back prayer <laughs> and a whole lot of it okay we give it up here in the studio for stephen a smith welcome the individual that people love to hate Stephen A. Smith. <laughs> so much honored to be here and nervous as all get out, but I'm, 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 I'm all right. I'm all right. You heard? He's nervous? Not Stephen A. Smith. Um, what you don't know is about his faith journey and his faith life, and he has been able to navigate the world of sports and media and broadcast and at the same time represent that faith that he has in the Lord Jesus Christ and express how it has been an anchor uh, of his soul. But what you may not know about is how he began. And Stephen A., you were actually um, um, uh, born into the Ansuru Allah community. How many know about the Ansuru Allah community? If you're, gosh, y'all making me feel old. All right, so there was a community of Muslim all right, a Muslim sect here in the United States. And they established themselves physically on Bushwick Avenue in Brooklyn. And they would wear, uh, you know, a garb that was uh, identified with the Islamic faith and created a community here. And he was actually born into that community. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, my sister... Uh, was married to one of the individuals from the community and introduced me to it when I was nine years old. And so, uh, for me, even at that age, I was very, very big on black empowerment. I was very, very big on being, quote-unquote, what they say, a rebel with a cause. And so my mentality was, even though I grew up admiring 
Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., obviously so. I also was an admirer of Malcolm X, by any means necessary, an eye for an eye. I thought like that. Um, and I'm not trying to shy away and act like I still don't think like that to some degree, but there's ways to do it now that I wasn't thinking about back then. And so because of that, that's why I became associated with that community and I was for years and then um, something was calling me. Hmm. And I just felt the presence of God, of Jesus in my life. My mother was a devout Episcopalian. She constantly preached that she didn't want to hear all that. She didn't want to hear about Muslims. She didn't want to hear about anything but Jesus Christ. That was my mama. And about 28 years ago, I met you. And... <laughs> I don't know how to take that. The rest is history. <laughs> the rest is history. Ever since then, we sat down, we talked, and... It took, a, it took a while for me to come up on this stage and ultimately get saved and give my life to Jesus Christ and, 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 and declare him as my Lord and Savior. And I'm talking about close to a decade. But he stayed with me. I'm going to come in on that. He was coming to church before he gave his life to Christ for almost 10 years. Just coming and listening and thinking and exploring. And we would talk. And I didn't, I didn't stress him. I didn't push him. You know, some of y'all perform spiritual muggings. You got to close the deal right away. All right? Don't point. Y'all know who you are. But I gave him the space to grow because I saw that for him, it would be a very critical decision that he would make because he had a lot of questions. And we had to talk through some of those questions about Jesus, about Mary, about the virgin birth. I mean, on and on and on. So finally, he, he said to me, he said, so how am, I, how am I gonna know it's time? And I felt all of those years culminating in that moment with him asking this question. And, and how many know you, you have to function in wisdom when you're dealing with anyone, because each individual is different, and how the Holy Spirit is working with that person, wooing them and drawing them to Christ is different. So when he asked me, how will I know? I said, Stephen, you're going to know, because you're going to come to church on a Sunday, you're going to sit there, and there's going to be an altar call. And all of a sudden, you're going to be compelled to come up to this altar and give your life to Christ. I left it right there. A month after that conversation, altar call, and he would usually sit up in the balcony. He came coming, he came walking down here and stood here with, with his eyes welled up. And that was the moment for him. And he gave his life to Christ. God saved him. And then he began his journey. What do I read? What, what do I read? He wanted to know, what do I read? Where, where do I eat? And it was a process over time until, and also with all of the things that were going on in your personal life. Listen, um, <clears throat> when you do what I do for a living and you reach millions, or in my case, billions now, if you take into account YouTube and stuff like that, I reach about two billion people a year. When you recognize that you have that reach, everybody has their source of motivation. Everybody, you know, it's a lot of folks, it's prayer and worship for me. It's literally the word. You know, I love the music. I love the performances. I love the motivation it instills in you. 
But to me, the word is everything because I know what I have to encounter in the world outside of here. Mm. And it's one thing to be inspired and motivated, but it's another thing entirely to be armed with words you know you're going to need to use to offset and negate the momentum of iniquitous things, iniquitous circumstances, iniquitous people that may come your way. And so a lot of times, listening to the pastor and coming here week after week, I knew that no matter what trials and tribulations I was going through, I've always been big on accountability. And whatever I did in my life, I owned. I got left back in the fourth grade, I owned it. I struggled in high school at times, I owned it. I went to college, didn't do things the right way sometimes, I owned it. My personal life, I'm a father out of well, like I owned that. My mother, the greatest woman that I've ever known, God rest her soul, who passed away in 2017, she instilled that in me. And so for me, it was never, I never ran from accountability. But knowing that I had that accountability, and knowing that I now was given a platform where I had the opportunity to reach so many people and the eye of the storm was on me, I knew that I had to be ready. And there's no way on earth that I had a, a snowball's chance, and you know what, of pulling that off without God's grace, without God's assistance, and without the love of my family and loved ones, which obviously includes this man. His new book is out, and I think we've got a copy of the cover right here, and there's going to be a book signing right after the service uh, in the Vision Hall, and Stephen will be out there to sign copies after you buy one, <laughs> and you'll get a chance to, uh, to interact with him. But let's go to the book, because I took time to read the book, and uh, thank you for the several shout-outs in the book in the course of your life. But I remember when your father passed, and you called me, and it was a crisis moment for you because of the bad relationship that existed between you and your father. You talk about it in the book, and the funeral was coming up. I, I had the opportunity to, to be at the funeral, part of the funeral, but it was really a, a point of crisis for you. Talk about that, Stephen, and how you worked through that. My mother passed away in June of 2017, and sadness obviously engulfed my entire family. For me, it was fury. And the fury emanated from the fact that with all the things that she had to do for us, most of it was my father's responsibility. One he never lived up to. My mother worked 16 hours a day seven hours, I mean, seven days a week for 20 plus years with one week's vacation a year. And when I think about the struggle that she had to endure, I'm an old-fashioned kind of dude. 
To me, a man's top priority is to take care of and provide for his family first. You don't eat unless they eat. You ain't comfortable unless they're comfortable. That is your responsibility. And that was the responsibility that my mother shouldered for decades. And so 14 months later, when my father passed away, that morning at 7.30, I've got four older sisters. I love them dearly. Linda, Arlen, Abigail, Carmen. But I'm very, very close to my sister Carmen, who's right in the front row right there. She is my ace. And I called her at 7.30, and I said, I'm giving Dad's eulogy today. Because they had already mapped it out. They had planned it. And I just usurped everybody. I said, I'm giving Dad's funeral. And they were like, she was like, oh, God, no. <laughs> Steve, 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 what are you going to say? I said, you'll find out when I get there. And she was like, Steve, please don't do this. Steve, please don't do this. Steve, what would Mommy want? What would Mommy want? And those last words she said prompted me to call this man, who I've known for close to 30 years, who's the one person on this planet that I hide nothing from. And I'm not a hider, but I tell him everything, unedited. Well, so what? I don't cuss. But, but I let him know. There are boundaries in the conversation. There are boundaries. And I let him know how I was feeling. And I wanted what I wanted to say. And I asked him, was it okay? And he said, yes, it is. It's your truth. He said, but I want to throw something at you. He said, there's scripture that speaks to God's mercy and God's forgiveness. He said, you can tell your truth without shredding who you are. And I remembered that. And so after everybody, you go to a funeral and everybody's throwing out the superlatives and they're throwing out the well wishes and they're saying all the right things. This person was good, great, all of that other stuff. They came to me. It's time for the eulogy. And I started out by saying, all of you have had very beautiful stories to say about my dad. My family and I have an entirely different story. And my brother-in-law, Darren, just killed for it. No. <laughs> My cousin Derek that flew up from Florida, he covered his face, he said, oh, God, no. I had neighbors that I grew up with. They were literally lip-syncing, whispering, <laughs> They were doing all of that. And I started out by saying, my father was not a good father. He was not a great man. I said, but my mother was something special. She's the greatest woman that I've ever known. And I am Stephen A, and I'm seen throughout the world. And everybody knows who I am. My mother didn't even know ESP. She said EPS, and I don't know what to do. <laughs> she did not know sports at all. But she knew what a home run was. She knew what a strikeout was. She knew what a no-hitter was. And she knew those things because my dad was a huge baseball fan. And because of him, she knew things she had absolutely no interest in, which means he was that special to her.
And if he was that special to her, there must have been something special about him. Then I went into a lot of the good things and the good times that we had together. And I ended it by saying, at the end of the day, he was my dad and I love him. And that's how it ended. And I sat there praying <laughs> that truth and forgiveness would come together, liberate him so he can speak the truth, but at the same time forgive and not close the door because this was the exiting of your dad and you handle it so well. I was so, so proud and we were all relieved <laughs> at the end of the funeral. <laughs> um, that is one of several stories. You gotta read the book, get the rest of the stories about this man's life, his love of Jesus Christ, his passion to be an ambassador for Christ, and the fact that he was teachable and had a yearning, has a yearning for truth that has been God's instrument to shape him and fashion him to, into the individual that he is today. Stephen, we're proud of you. I'm proud of you. Your family's proud of you. Your congregation is proud of you. And I'm glad that, you know, after beating up on Tim Tebow so bad, that you're giving a little space. I, I was in a meeting with Tebow, and I said, Tim, I am sorry <laughs> for all that Stephen Smith said. Anyway, if you didn't see it, you don't know about it. But, but thank you for who you are, man. And keep representing the kingdom. Thank you. <laughs> Come on, let's all stand as we prepare our hearts for the words. Don't we need some word? Yes. All right. Praise the Lord. Let's give Stephen A. another round of applause and appreciation. Good? Okay. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wisdom of creating a community called the church, a spiritual family, universal, covering this planet, but also local to our respective communities, respective communities. Thank you for this spiritual family called CCC. Thank you for the lives that you continue to change, to transform from the least to the greatest. You are the God of our salvation, the God of purpose and transformation, redemption. Thank you for being that God to us and continuing to show yourself, guiding us, sustaining us towards the future that you have for humanity. Thank you for this opportunity to gather, to worship, to pray, to sing, to experience prayer, and to be able to hear story of how you transform a life. Once again, your word is the power that we have to deal with the world outside. 
We know here at CCC, it is a war of words. So Father, give us the words. Touch our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to understand, that it may translate into power in this world in which we live. We ask you in Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Before you see it, greet three people. Come on, bless them in the name of the Lord. So, Pastor Karen, when I got home, she said, that was such a good service. I really enjoyed the word. She said, but do me a favor. Would you actually continue next week? I said, what are you trying to say? Y'all weren't supposed to clap at that. So, I'm going to pick up from where we left off. But there are some theological things that I have to say to you and to those of you listening and watching. We have pastors who tune in, scholars who tune in, all kinds of people tune in. They're watching. So I want to say something specific because I have to make clear the theology of our house. When you go to seminary, you're engaged in critical thinking about your faith. Theology is supposedly the study of God, but how can you study God, right? You can learn about God, and I'm not going to go into special revelation, natural revelation, but God can be known. Beautiful passage in Romans chapter one, where the apostle Paul says, there are things that can be known about God. And those things man is held accountable so that he cannot say there's no God. But in seminary, you learn different perspectives, different ideas. But you're not told where to land. You're not told what you should believe in. And that's the way seminary should be. But when you go to a church, that church can't be all over the place, theologically. It has to have a clear theological framework. So that I call the theology of this house. So I don't know about the theology of somebody else's house, but the theology of this house is critical because it's foundational to what I share. And I say that because in as much as last week, I was talking about the empires that preceded the coming of Jesus Christ. The book of Daniel chapter 2, and we're not going to, well, maybe we will get to unpack that. But in the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And of course, he is the king of the Babylonian Empire. Premier empire, early empire, very sophisticated, advanced empire. 
In fact, it's within the Babylonian context that we have the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, and the unity of humanity and their confidence in their own technology to reject God from their society and the decision that they will build a world for themselves. And of course, God's response to that was breaking down their lines of communication. Another way of saying the confusion of tongues. So Babylon, and when we think about Babylon, we must also think about Mesopotamia, Sumeria, Phoenician cultures. We must think about all of the ancient world. Babylon was considered the supreme authority and advanced civilization. So Daniel is captive in Babylon. Jews were taken away in captivity. The kingdom of Israel divided earlier between the northern kingdoms and the kingdom of Judah in the south. So that identity that they had as a nation, as a national entity, toppled, and they were now taken into captivity. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied that that captivity in Babylon would last for a period of 70 years. Daniel read the writings of the prophet Jeremiah and also understood and affirmed that 70-year period that they'd be in captivity. So Daniel represented the best of the Jewish prophets and scholars who came in, but then they were educated in Babylonian culture and language. But they drew the line when it came to their own faith tradition. They took on the names, the clothing, the culture. But when it came to their faith, they maintained their faith. So it was brilliant for God to bring this about for the purpose of emphasizing through the prophet Daniel what was about to come in terms of the rise and fall of empires. So God doesn't give Daniel a dream, he gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream. Another stroke of genius. So Daniel, as an objective observer, is now called to interpret that dream. And Daniel takes time and consultation with Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego. It's not like he just came out. No, he took time and he asked for time to pray to the God of heaven, to hear. And he also discussed with his colleagues. Now Daniel brings the interpretation of the dream to the king. And he says, first of all, it was a, a statue and it was divided into the head, the shoulders and breastplate, the belly, legs, and the feet. And it was symbols of precious metal. Babylon being gold, represented by gold. And then Daniel, in chapter 2, speaks of successive empires that would rise and fall. And when we say fall, it doesn't mean that they were wiped from the face of the earth. No, they fell in terms of being supreme authority. They lost their supremacy as an empire. They still existed, but they lost their supremacy 
as an empire. So I, Daniel identifies the first empire as Babylon. And of course, the head of that empire, Nebuchadnezzar. And he basically says that another empire is going to emerge and Babylon is going to lose its supremacy. That empire would be the Medo-Persian because it began with the Medes and then the Persians. The Medo-Persian period or the Medo-Persian empire. This would be short-lived and the Persians would take over supremacy. So what would happen is Israel, who was in captivity, right? They would be in captivity to Babylon. And when you read Jeremiah chapter 29, when he says to them, he says to his people, he says, settle down, plant gardens, marry your children, build and pray for the peace and prosperity of the city. The prophet was telling them how they should conduct themselves, even though they would be in captivity in Babylon. In other words, don't sit around whining and crying or even praying for deliverance. No. Have a life. Get established. Interact with the culture. But maintain your distinction. And that's where they began to practice what we thousands of years later practice. And that is being within a society and a culture that has traditions that are antithetic to our beliefs. And yet we're in the culture functioning and not allowing the culture to inform us about our faith. But allowing our faith to inform us about the culture. So the Jews in captivity. So Daniel said that an empire, a new empire would rise to supremacy. It would be the Medes and the Persians. And then another empire, it would be Greece. Also known as the Macedonians. They would emerge to power. And then a final, which would be the Roman Empire. And why this was presented, you could take some time to read chapter 2 of, of the book of Daniel, and then in other places as well. Because these empires would precede the coming of a fifth empire, a fifth kingdom. Now, I think, I think we better... We better go to it. Let's go to Daniel chapter 2. And I'm going to read it from the Amplified Bible. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel's in the Old Testament. And let's go down to verse 19. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the seasons. 
He removes kings and he establishes kings. This is a very important text because this is a text that we use to say that whoever's in power, no matter who it is, whether we like them or not, agree with them or not, God is the one who puts individuals in power and removes them. So you cannot say when the person you like is in power, God did that. And when someone is in power that you don't like, you blame it on the devil. Either God is fully in control of this, or he's not. And if there's someone in power that you may disagree with, you should not be asking whether the devil or God put them in power. You've got to be consistent in what you believe. Amen? What you should be asking is, what is God's purpose for that person being in power? It is he who changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He does what to kings? Come on. He removes kings and he... Why? Because God is in control. How many believe that God's in control? How many believe that he is all powerful? That he is the one guiding, sustaining, and providing for human history. It is called providence. We believe in divine providence. He gives wisdom to the wise and greater knowledge to those who have understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. I thank you, listen to Daniel, I thank you and praise you, O God, of my fathers, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now, you have made known to me what we requested of you. For you have made known to us the solution to the king's matter. So Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. And please understand that because they couldn't interpret the dream, the king was going to take them out. I don't know if you want that job, but I'm just... No, this is, comes with the territory, right? Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will reveal to the king the interpretation of his dream. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel before the king and said, to this, said this to him, I have found a man among the exiles of Judah who can explain to the king the interpretation of the dream. The king said to Daniel, whose Babylonian name was Belshazzar, are you able to reveal to me the content of the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, regarding the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither the wise men, enchanters, magicians, nor astrologers are able to answer the king. But there's a God in heaven. Whew, I love that. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the vision that appeared in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, as you were lying on your bed, thoughts came into your mind about what will take place in the future. And he who reveals secrets has shown you what will occur. But as for me, 
This secret has not been revealed to me because my wisdom is greater than that of any other living man, but in order to make the interpretation known to the king and so that you may understand fully the thoughts of your own mind. Your mind. Verse 31, you, O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue. This image, which was large and of unsurpassed splendor, stood before you. And its appearance was awesome and terrifying. As for this statue, its head was made of what? Head was made of what? So we've got gold. And we will end up with silver. Then what? Bronze, okay. And lastly, and yet there will be iron mixed with what? Clay. Symbolic language, right? Verse 32, as for the statue, its head was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay, like pottery. As you were looking, a stone was cut out without human hands. Did you hear that part? Without human hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Please get the picture here. So these represents kingdoms, empires. Right? And all of a sudden, another player comes into the scene. These represent human kingdoms, the kingdoms of men, earthly kingdoms. Let's continue. Verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 33, its legs of iron, its feet are partly of iron partly of clay pottery, as you were looking, a stone was cut out without human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed together and became like the chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, and the stone that struck the statue became a what? Can't hear you, what? And it filled the... Okay, so you can't take that literally. So it's not going to be one mountain that, that fills the whole earth. So it's language, right? It's, 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 it's prophetic and symbolic language. Verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, are the king of earthly kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell and the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You, king of Babylon, are the head of gold. After you will arise another, what? Kingdom, Medo-Persia, inferior to you. And then a third kingdom of bronze, Greece, under the Alexander the Great. Now, please understand that when you see brackets in the Amplified Bible, it's commentary, not original scripture. Which will rule over all the earth. Then a what kingdom? Come on. A fourth kingdom. 
Rome will be strong as iron, for iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron, which crushes things in pieces, it will break and crush all the others. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a what? Come on. A divided kingdom, but there will be in it some of the durability and strength of iron. Just as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the ten toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so some of the kingdom will be strong and another part of it will be brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with common clay, so they, so they will combine with one another in, seed, in the seed of men, but they will not merge, for which diverse things or ideologies cannot unite, even as iron does not mix with clay. So essentially, all of that language is saying is focusing on the last empire of Rome, Mixed with what? Iron and clay, which means it's going to be strong and yet weak, which simply means that the nations of iron that will come out of the Roman Empire will be durable and continue, but there will be certain nations, or, all right, that will come out, or kingdoms that will come out, that will ultimately be dissolved. Out of the Roman Empire came what we understand today, especially back then, as Western Europe. Parts of Asia, parts of Africa, Asia Minor, like the Franks, which became France, the Spaniards, all right, um, the United Kingdom, the Scots, because the Roman Empire reached from Scotland all the way up in the north down to Egypt and northern parts of Africa. So all of those nations that you see there came out of this empire of Rome. So this empire would be strong and powerful, but weak. And notice gold down to what? Silver down to Bronze down to? So in spite of the fact that civilization is becoming more advanced, more powerful, but at the same time, it's becoming morally, come on, weaker and weaker and weaker. And when we get to the Roman Empire, what causes the collapse of the Roman Empire besides the, the military machine that they couldn't support, heavy taxation? What Corruption within the Roman Senate, corruption within the leaders of the empire. So Daniel is foreseeing all of this in advance. And here's what we want to get to. In the days of the final ten kings. So out of the Roman Empire would come ten kingdoms with ten kings. We're not going to get into exactly what they are today or who they are. But out of that would come ten in the days of those final ten kings, the God of heaven, the God of heaven will set up a what? Come on. Set up a. Stay with me. I'm in verse 44. In the days of those final ten kings, the God of heaven will set up a. A what? Okay, so the, the kingdoms that we saw were set up by who? Men. They were earthly kingdoms. They were human kingdoms. But now who's going to set up a kingdom? And where's he going to set it up? In heaven or on earth? 
on earth. It's all about kingdoms on earth. So Daniel is looking out. He, see, he sees what? What does he see in the dream? The, the interpretation of the dream. The Babylonian empire that he was in collapses, right? Loses its, 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 its uh, supremacy. Then the Medo-Persian Empire emerges, loses its supremacy. Then the Grecian Empire emerges, loses its supremacy. Then the Roman Empire uh, emerges and then loses its supremacy. And by 476, the Roman Empire is collapsing. But while the Roman Empire is existent, remember in the days of this last empire and the ten kingdoms out of that empire, who's going to set up a kingdom? Who's going to set up a kingdom? Where was Jesus born? In what empire? What empire? Rome. The last empire. The fourth empire. Jesus comes on the scene. He's born, right? And when Jesus begins to preach, what's he preaching? What's his message? I can't hear you. What's his message? The kingdom of heaven has come. What kingdom? The kingdom that Daniel said would emerge during the reign of the Roman Empire. Let's go back. Verse 44, in the days of those final 10 kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. That will what? And will it's, and will it's so its sovereignty and uh, nor will its sovereignty be left for another people. In other words, it won't follow the way earthly empires that someone else is going to come in and take it over. There's going to be a permanency to this kingdom. Are you with me? But it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms and it will stand for how long? Just as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it crushed the iron, the bronze, and the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has revealed to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So listen. The whole, and, and this is why I have to make this theological statement to you, so you understand the theology of this house. The whole tone of the Hebrew scriptures, we call it the Old Testament. The Jews call it the Hebrew scripture. Its translation from Hebrew into Greek was done by the Masoretes. And then there was what is called the Septuagint. We have English translations that come from one or, or the other of those sources. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is the whole body of scripture, there is this underlying theme of a messianic figure that's going to emerge, appear on earth, and solve all of the problems that the Jews have. Got it? Rabbi Potasik and I, who engage in so many different events together and share, we have a show called on WABC Radio called The Rev and the Rabbi. We have these very serious conversations about this. So when I say to him that Messiah is coming, 
He'll say, well, I'm sorry, when he'll say to me, Messiah's coming, I said, you mean he's coming again? And we'll go back and forth and we'll toy. But the reality is that even he as a Jew believes that there is a Messiah to come. Are you with me? And the theme throughout the Hebrew scriptures point to a messianic figure who's going to emerge and solve all of the earth's problems. This was the covenant that God made with Abraham that through Abraham, a seed, singular, as in Christ, would emerge. Got it? So it's true amongst the Hebrew people and the Hebrew scripture that there will be this messianic figure. We believe he came in the person of Jesus Christ. They believe he hasn't come yet because the Jews are still somewhat in captivity. And all the promises have not been fulfilled. That's why they rejected Jesus. We say he came in the person of Jesus Christ. They say he's yet to come. We say when he comes, he's coming again. Are you with me? Okay. This is important, what I want to share with you, because it speaks of our perspective on the Old Testament. There is currently what is called, and you can write this down, critical scholarship. Critical scholarship. In other words, scholars, and they study the scripture. But from a critical perspective, critical primarily of the traditional interpretation and understanding of scripture. These critical scholars or critical scholarship that emerged in mostly 1700s and, and up, they began to adopt new methodologies of understanding and interpreting scripture. Their methodologies were, and you could write these down, Source, criticism, form, criticism, and tradition history. Those of you in NSBT, those of you who have gone to seminary, those of you who have studied at this level, you're familiar with this language. Those of you who have not gotten there, don't worry about it. It's not going to help you pay your rent. <laughs> it's just good to know. But I have to say this, all right, as the pastor of this house and the theologian of this house. So they came up with these new methodologies of interpreting scripture, especially we're talking the Old Testament. And source criticism and form criticism and tradition history began to challenge whether the Bible is truly divinely inspired. It's authority. We believe that the word of God is inspired by God, don't we, church? Come on. God used individuals and breathed on those individuals, not taking away from them their personality or their character, to communicate his truth, his word for human society. Do we believe that? Yes. To the Bible is a sacred book. It's not just another piece of literature like Huckleberry Finn. It is a divinely inspired book. And that's why it holds authority to us. 
But this new critical scholarship says, no, we're now challenging divine inspiration, and we're also challenging the notion that the Old Testament contains a Christology or references to Jesus Christ. Why is that important? I'm glad you asked. You're asking all the right questions this morning. And this is tough because, you know, I, I've, got a, I've, got, I've got an audience here from lay persons to, to seminarians who are, who are studied, and, and I've got to say this in, in layman's language. So far, so good. Are we okay? All right. So they're challenging the, the, the authority of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture. They're also challenging whether Jesus is actually found in the Old Testament. And why is that a problem? I'm glad you asked. Because if he's not found in the Old Testament, how could he claim to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises? So by denying the inspiration of Scripture by God and denying an Old Testament Christology or the presence of Jesus in the Old Testament, we can now, they, not we, but they can now challenge the identity of Jesus, whether he indeed was God in human form. And this is where society is going, folks. This is where society is going. So I want you to know that here at CCC, we believe in divine inspiration. We believe that the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, is inspired by God. The Holy Spirit breathed on the minds of these individuals and they wrote as they were moved by the Spirit of God to preserve over a period of 1,500 years from some 40 different authors a consistent theme about man's redemption and a revelation of the plan's purposes and identity and nature of God. Why am I saying these things to you? Because that's where we are in our society here in America. The rapid secularization of America is challenging our traditional beliefs. And you better know what you're talking about because when, when I was a black Muslim, we ate Christians for breakfast. Why? Because they didn't know what they were talking about. They didn't know what they believed. You better know what you believe. Plain and simple. Because you've got to be prepared. If you encounter a Hebrew Israelite, what are they going to do? They're going to challenge you on your knowledge of scripture. How about this one? If you encounter the devil. Come on, Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. What was it, an exchange? It was about a conversation. Come on, it was words and it was scripture. The devil said, it is written. And Jesus had to say, it is written again. So you can't just know what's written. You better know what's written again. The battle is the mind. Words. It's a war of words across every platform. Words are trying to inform, shape, deceive. So the word of God has to be the final word of authority for us as we are believers. Are there any Christians in the house? Are there any believers in the word in the house? One of the questions I was asked in the interview this past week about faith, and I said, faith 
is a reasoned trust. Did you hear what I just said? It is not a blind trust. It's not something that sort of kind of feels like to you. It is a reasoned trust. In other words, God gave us word to process and reason and come to a conclusion as to who he is and what his purpose is for humanity. That's why faith comes by and hearing by the well, I love y'all. So faith is a reason trust. The Bible gives us reasons to trust God. And I'll put my money on the Bible before I put it on a political candidate and all of their reasons to vote for them. Come on, how many know what I'm talking about? The world in which we live is a world that's based on faith. Brilliantly, God put this all together by faith. By faith, we function on a daily basis. Why? Because you've got to trust the information. You've got to trust a person. When I'm on a plane, I trust God. And I trust that pilot's competency. How many know what I'm talking about? And in a world of deception right now, because listen, deception is creating a false reality, getting you to believe in it, and then live in it. And that's exactly what's going on on these platforms. So you better know what you know. Know what you're talking about. So this, they're abandoning the Christology. They're abandoning Christ. And if they do that, then it strips Christianity of it to its core. I want you to see something. So, by the way, Jesus announces the kingdom. We're not going to talk about the kingdom, but this is really the heart of what I wanted to project to you. Let's go to, let's go to, oh, there's that clock again. This happened to me last week. Ah. Okay, here at CCC, we subscribe, I'm finishing up, finish this up in five minutes. Here at CCC, we subscribe to a Christological interpretation of the Old Testament. In other words, we believe in that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, right, is an eschatological messianic text. It's an eschatological, messianic text. Not just a collection of wonderful history of a Jewish people. No, there's a whole lot more going on. What is it? What is the Old Testament to us here at CCC? And, and look, eschatological. Not eschatological. Eschatological. Messianic text. In other words, it reveals the Messiah. It reveals Jesus. The Old Testament enfolds Christ. The New Testament unfolds Christ. The Old Testament enfolds Christ. The New Testament unfolds Christ. 
And from Genesis 3.15, the promise emerges of a messianic figure who's going to come. And all of scripture is about that messianic figure. Are you with me? Come on, say it with me. What do we subscribe to here at CCC concerning the Old Testament? It is a what? So you can challenge the texts all you want. Let's get into the challenge of the different texts in the Old Testament. All right. But at the end of the day, we believe that it's an eschatology is simply, all right, the future. It's about last things, how the, the age, the history is going to close out, the end times. Different from apocalyptic, but eschatological. Let's, so Jesus meets, after his resurrection, he meets up with two individuals on the road to Emmaus. How many remember the text? And on the road to Emmaus, these two individuals look at him and say, you know, uh, don't you know what's been going on here? How Jesus came, we thought he was the one. And, and instead, he, he was crucified and he died. Now they're saying that he rose from the dead, but we thought he was the one. And they're all disappointed. And they're talking to Jesus and don't even know it. And then Jesus responds. It's in Luke chapter 24. Jesus responds by opening the eyes of their understanding. Let's go to verse 44, the gospel of Luke chapter 24, 44. Are you there? Then he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything which has been written about me in what? Come on. It's on the screen. Verse 44. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything which has been written about me in what? The law of Moses, Moses, right? And the, the prophets and the? Must be what? Then he, what did he do? Open their mind to help them understand the scriptures. And what did he want them to understand from the scripture? That the scriptures speak about him. Let's go to another text very quickly. Did you get this? Because I'm telling you, you're going to get hit with this stuff. Let's go to Luke 18.31. Then taking the 12 disciples aside, he said to them, listen carefully. We are going up to Jerusalem and all things that have been written through the, come on, prophets about the son of man will be, come on, fulfilled and completed. He will be betrayed and handed over to the Gentiles, the Roman authorities, and will be mocked and ridiculed and insulted and abused and spit on. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise from the dead. Come on. Are you with me? Are you with me? Is that the gospel? The gospel is under attack by so-called scholars who want to strip it of its power and its authority and the central character within the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. Who is the Bible about? Jesus. It's about human thriving, but it's about a person, Jesus Christ. And Christianity is not a religion that is is based upon moral law and you do good. No, 
You don't get to heaven by what you know. You get there by who you know. It's about a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Let's go to Matthew. I'm sorry. John chapter 5, verse 39. John 5, 39. Jesus talking to the religious leaders. He says, you search and keep on searching and examining the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet, it is those very scriptures that testify about, come on, me. And still you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Who's it all about? Come on. Who's it all about? Come on. Say that name. Say that name. John 145. John 145. This is in the beginning. Philip found Nathaniel all excited about his encounter with Jesus. And what did Philip say to Nathaniel? We have found the one. Come on. Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote about who? Jesus from Nazareth, the son of Joseph, according to public record. Let's go to, finally to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Hebrews 10, 5. Hebrews 10, 5. Therefore, when, who enters the world? And Christ is not Jesus' last name. I'll give you some time. Some of you look shocked. It's his title. Christ means the anointed one. In the early days of his ministry, he was called Jesus of Nazareth. And as they understood his identity, he became called Christos, Jesus the Christ. It means the anointed one. Therefore, when Christ enters into the world, he says... Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but instead you have prepared a what? Come on. A body for me to offer. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no delight. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, to fulfill what is written of me in the scroll of the book, the Old Testament scripture. Are you hearing? I'll let you read it on your own. The point is, folks, as we will unpack, because I want you to see where we've come from, not just, not just an eschatological perspective, but a cultural development of a rebuilding of the spirituality of the Roman Empire right here in the world today. And I don't know if you remember the numbers that I indicated last week. All right, how many gods, how many, little g, how many gods were, were with the Babylonian Empire? Nine. Medo-Persian Empire, 12. The Grecian Empire, 20. When we get to the Roman Empire, how many? 218. That's an interesting number, by the way. I'll let that marinate next time there's a vote for a speaker. Anyway, so listen. So listen, what collapsed Rome is now emerging in a global spirituality targeting our nation. Why? Because of our power, 
our influence, and our claim to be a Christian nation, one nation under God. So why wouldn't Satan want to do everything he could to unravel and dismantle? And it's through spiritual influences. And it's manifesting itself in policy, practices, procedures, systems, structures. Are you all with me? That we're seeing emerging and old systems that are being challenged. We're going to get back to this. Did you get anything out of this today? Come on, give God a good hand, clap off. And thank you for your patience, because this is not easy to share with such a diverse congregation. You're all at different levels of knowledge of Scripture, your spiritual maturity, you're all at different levels. It is not easy to accomplish this without losing some or boring others. How many understand? So come on, let's give God a good hand clap offering for his word. Every issue in human society today that's within the culture war is a spiritual issue. Come on, let's stand. Paul said we wrestle not against, but against. Some of you are in the book. Now, I hope you don't get a meal like this and say, man, I wish he'd just tell me how to be blessed. <laughs> then you've missed what I've been saying all along. You're already blessed. You're not trying to get God to bless you. You're learning how to walk in his favor, how to walk in his blessing, how to walk with his guidance, how to walk with him opening doors and making ways for you, how to walk with him creatively, redemptively, providentially, judicially. It's learning how to walk with him. So stop trying to get God to bless you. And start declaring that you are a blessed individual because of your relationship with God in Jesus Christ. Are there any blessed people in here today? Look for the way where there's no way. Look for the door that has been closed that only God can open. Look for his hand. Look for his favor. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be what? All these things will be what? You don't have to pursue what you can attract by the person you become. Become the person that attracts opportunity. Become the person that attracts open doors. Become the person that attracts right relationships. Become the person that attracts the wealth that you need, the resources that you need, the ideas that you need. And I'm going to stop here. Let the Bible shape you and you become that person. Instead of walking around whining and crying, you'll start speaking like a person who's the head and not the tail, who's been placed above and not beneath, who has eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand, and is walking in the favor that God has gifted to you. He paid the ultimate price by giving his son, Jesus Christ, just to bring you into his favor. Don't you dare miss it. Don't you dare miss it. You wake up every morning with expectation because expectation sets the atmosphere for miracles. Expectation is what opens the door for change. I'm trying to quit. But I want you to be the best version of the kingdom of God that you can be. Does anyone want that with me for you? Be the best version.
be the best of us. Not just ethnically or racially, but spiritually. Be the best of us. Can I pray over you? Father, thank you, first of all, for the patience of your people. Thank you for the anointing upon the whole service. But especially, thank you for the Holy Spirit's assistance to bring clarity of understanding during the message. It is time for us to rise up as your people, as your ambassadors. And wherever you place us in the culture, that we're going to let our light shine like never before. Deepen their relationship with you. Deepen their understanding of your word. Give them a yearning for truth. Give them a teachable spirit. Quick to forgive. Quick to repent. Shake them and use them as points of light in a dark world. This I ask you in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Come on, give God a good hand. Clap offering. Hallelujah. I've held you captive. I'm going to release you right now. But let me pray this prayer. Father, if there's anyone in here today who's never made a confession of faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, let them follow this prayer right now. Say, God, I thank you for this opportunity to open my heart to your love, your forgiveness in Jesus Christ. I believe that he died on that cross for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead for my justification and so that I can have new life in the kingdom of God. So I surrender my heart, my mind, my will and emotions to Jesus Christ. I declare him as Lord of my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Teach me your ways that I may be the best ambassador of the kingdom of God. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Come on, give God a good hand, clap offering. Hallelujah. We've had a full service and a long day. Thank you, choir. Excellent, excellent job. Our band, everyone, thank you for being with us today. Let's say something good as we leave this place, but never God's presence. Jesus is Lord, period. We believe it, we proclaim it, and we're seeing it come to pass. God bless you. Have a wonderful week in the Lord. Thanks for tuning in to the A.R. Bernard Podcast. I hope you were enriched by the information and or the conversation. Make sure subscribe by clicking the link in the bio to gain more information about me and the work that I'm doing. Again, thank you and God bless.